How do you want to be remembered when you're gone? Have you ever thought about that before? Have you ever thought about how am I going to be remembered when I'm no longer here, when I'm dead or if I move somewhere? Or, is that even something you care about? Well, Paul cared about it, and I think we should as well. This is an incredibly remarkable text. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He wants to get there for the Pentecost celebration, and, and, but his ship stops in Miletus. And while in Miletus, he calls the leaders of the, the church at Ephesus to come to him, the elders of the church, the, the pastors and leaders from Ephesus. Now, remember, Paul had spent three years in Ephesus. He, he, had, he had invested in this church tremendously, spent time with them. He had taught them thoroughly God's truth, and he knew these brothers. He probably installed them as pastors of this church. He loved them dearly. And so when the elders heard that Paul was calling, it says that they came to him 50 miles, some 50 miles away. And what we see here is the heart of a man. I mean, Paul just unloads his heart to these brothers. And what we see is the heart of a man who is gripped by Jesus Christ. I mean, someone whose life has been forever altered by the Lord Jesus. Someone, Someone who sees that Jesus truly is worthy of our lives. We see the heart of someone who's been mastered by the master himself. It's almost as though Paul is speaking his own obituary to, the, to this, these believers from Ephesus. He's telling them what could have been inscribed on his tombstone. He's completely upfront with them. He says, you're not going to see my face again. And then he reminds them of how he lived among them. In fact, that's the first words of Paul's address. He says, you remember how I lived among you from the first day I set foot in Asia. You remember. Full transparency, I lived before each one of you, all of you. It's interesting. Paul is not ashamed to tell them. He's not ashamed to remind them, you know how faithful I was in your sight. I lived before you a certain way. He wants to remind them of how he lived in front of them. He left an indelible mark on this church. Clearly, he left a huge mark on this church. I'm reading a biography of Jonathan Edwards right now. And when he died, his wife, Sarah, wrote a letter to probably to all the children, but there's a letter recorded in this book written to one of the daughters named Lucy. And the letter concludes with these words. It says this, What a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and there I love to be, your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. What a legacy my husband and your father has left. What mark are you leaving on those around you? How are you going to be remembered? What would you want inscribed on your tombstone? Not just because it sounds good, but because it's true. Here's what I want to do. I want to look at Paul's address, and I want to draw out five statements that I think summarize the way that he lived among the believers in Ephesus. 
And what we see in Paul, I think there's application across the board for everyone in this room, from the oldest to the youngest. So how did Paul live among these believers? Number one, Paul was a humble, affectionate, all-weather servant of the Lord. Verses 18 and 19, Paul says this, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole, from the whole, excuse me, the, how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. And then he says this, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul says, you saw it. You know how I lived among you. I serve the Lord with humility and with tears, and with trials. Paul loved to refer to himself as a servant. Paul was an apostle. Paul was, I mean, just in sheer volume of the New Testament that he wrote in terms of number of books. He was perhaps the most influential apostle. He was the the apostle to the Gentiles. The first missionary movement was through him. He was an important person. He was a big man, if you will. And yet he loved to refer to himself as a servant of Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. In Philippians chapter 1, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our our English translations translate the word servant, but, but essentially the word is slave or bond slave. Paul saw himself as a bond slave of Christ. He didn't come to town pushing his weight around. He came as a servant of the Lord Jesus. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life for the benefit of others. He followed in the footsteps of Jesus himself, who said he didn't come to serve, but to be, excuse me, come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Paul's Paul's service is described in a certain way. First, he says, I served with all humility. With all humility. B.B. Warfield, in a sermon on Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, said that humility is essentially self-forgetfulness. Forgetting about self. It is forgetting about self for the sake of blessing and serving others. Paul served the Lord by working for the benefit of these believers by pointing away from himself and pointing them to Christ. So this humble, self-sacrificial service of Paul, he didn't, didn't lead him away from people, but right into the midst of people. And I think we see this as we continue on with what Paul says. Paul says, I serve the Lord with all humility and with tears. I serve the Lord with tears. Paul identified with these believers so much that it hurt. It hurt him. I mean, pain. He suffered tears because he loved these believers so much. He was so affectionate in his love for them and their well-being that he shed tears. 
He wept with those who suffered. He shed tears as he preached his heart out to them. Later in the text, it says he admonished them night and day with tears. And no doubt he shed tears as he prayed to God for these believers. If you have children, you know what this is like, don't you? Your love for your children. What parent has not shed tears as they weep with their children when their children weep? Even with just an owie, if it's a really bad one, we just hurt for them. We, doesn't, we don't like it. Or if you have a child who's walked away from the Lord, how many, how many have not wept over that? Or even in your prayers to God, you're just overcome with the Spirit as you pray for your child to know Jesus, to walk with Christ, to be faithful, to find a husband or wife who will love them and stay with them and be faithful and certainly shed tears. Paul served Christ with all humility and with tears. But he also served with trials. Paul was no fair-weather servant. He didn't serve when the sun was shining, figuratively speaking. He served all the time. He served with trials, meaning that the service of these believers in Christ's name was alongside trials that he was walking through. Paul refers to the trials he endured. It says, he says, through the plots of the Jews. Paul was constantly harassed by the Jewish people who opposed the gospel. Constantly. We've gone through the book of Acts. We see city after city after city. Paul goes into the city and he's opposed and harassed by the Jewish people there. Often on the run for his life, he's stoned by the Jewish people. He's he's given 39 lashes five times. He's thrown into prison over and over again. He's accused and slandered. And yet, he served with trials. We go through trials. We go through difficulties, some that are really, really big and weighty. And all of us, lots and lots and lots of little ones. Do they sideline you from serving? They didn't, Paul. And I would suggest we've, boy, I mean, the kinds of things he walked through. I'd like to suggest something. If you're waiting to serve the Lord until you are trial-free, you never will. Ever. There will always be obstacles, small or big. If you're looking, and if you're looking for a way to serve the Lord that won't require you getting too involved with people and in their lives, you never will serve. Paul was a humble, affectionate, all-weather servant of Christ. Number two, Paul cared more about being faithful to Christ than comfort and even life itself. Verses 22 to 24, here's what Paul says. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies that in every city, there's going to be imprisonment and afflictions. How would you like that to be your future? 
I don't know exactly what my future holds, but I do know this. Prison, prison time, and suffering. Okay. I was like, let's do this, right? But he didn't mope about it. Listen to what he says next. But, it's a huge but. That's an important but, okay? But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What an amazing statement. What an amazing statement. Wow, Paul. Paul says he knows the rest of his life is one of prison and suffering, and yet he isn't gloomy about it. He says, my life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I just want to be faithful to the assignment that Christ has given me. I realize you could take this too far and be negligent to care for yourself appropriately and to care for your family and so forth. But I just would suggest I, I have not taken it too far. I love my comfort and I want more of it. Paul says, faithfulness to Christ is what matters. Faithfulness to Christ and his assignment on our life is what matters. Paul exemplified, perhaps like no one else, the words of Jesus when Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Paul held his life as something cheap for the sake of Christ and the gospel. He flung it away for Christ. Amy Carmichael was an Irish missionary for 53 years in India without taking one furlough. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a biography about her called A Chance to Die. Faithfulness to Christ. It would be so easy to say, and perhaps maybe some here are thinking, well, of course, this is the Apostle Paul, and, you know, he was like the Navy SEAL of the Navy SEALs in the early church. And so, and, and, and of course, there's some truth. This is the Apostle Paul, and, and in one sense, no one has a calling like his in this room or anyone in the world for that matter. But, but, we, but we shouldn't think that way in terms of this has no application to us because you and I are called to this as well. Not to be an apostle, probably not to go to prison for, for the gospel, probably not to die for Jesus, like physically put to death. But Jesus did say, whoever would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To take up your cross means to die. Right? The, the cross is, a, is an instrument of death. And so to take up your cross means to die, and to do it daily means to die daily. To die daily to our agenda, to what is, to our plans, to what we want for the sake of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. In fact, this is how believers overcome the assaults of the devil, which are sure to increase as we near the end of the age. Revelation 12 says that Christians, 
conquer the accuser or the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And do you know how the rest ends? Or do you know how it ends? And they loved not their lives even unto death. Believers will conquer the accuser by the blood of the lamb. That's first. Amen. And the word of their testimony. I believe that. That's my testimony. What Christ has done. And they love not their lives even unto death. For Paul, faithfulness to Christ and the gospel was more important than comfort and ease and even life itself. That's a legacy to leave. Number three, Paul told the truth. All of it. Not part of it, but all of it. Paul told the truth. Verses 20 and 21 and 26 and 27. Let me just read it. Paul says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul had a deep love for these believers. And he wanted to make sure that they had a full download of instruction. And so he reminded them. He said, I did not shrink. I didn't back away. I didn't shy away. I wasn't timid. I told you everything you needed to know. I told you everything. I gave you all of God's revelation. I gave you everything that was profitable. You might say, well, what's profitable? Well, verse 27 tells us, says that the whole counsel of God is profitable. All of it. All of God's revelation. Paul didn't shrink from telling them anything. He didn't say, well, we don't, you know, some of the stuff, gosh, I don't know if they'd really like. This isn't really very seeker sensitive. And he gave them all of it. He gave them all of God's revelation. For Paul, he didn't feel the need to apologize for God and what the Bible says about him. He didn't shrink from telling them all there was to be told about God. Paul believed that people's greatest good was to know God and to know all that he had revealed about himself. And so Paul labored. And we went through this maybe a couple weeks back, how for two years in the hall of Tyrannus, he preached maybe up for upwards of five hours a day, unloading God's truth on these brothers and sisters. Paul labored to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And listen, we might have some modern advances, but we are not so enlightened that we don't need the truth as well. All of it. Surely Paul didn't exhaustively go through each verse from Genesis to Malachi. I don't, don't think we're to understand Paul saying that. But he gave, them, he gave them all of God's... He didn't shirk any of it. He gave them all of God's revelation. D.A. Carson explains what Paul probably meant by the whole counsel of God. 
when he said, what Paul must mean is that he taught the burden of the whole of God's revelation, the balance of things, leaving nothing out that was of primary importance. He never ducked the hard bits. He wanted to help believers to grasp the whole counsel of God that they themselves would be better equipped to read the Bibles intelligently for themselves and comprehensively for themselves. You and I need all of God's revelation. All of it. A.W. Tozier said, and Paul agreed with this. A.W. Tozier said, we must not select a few favorite passages, or I would even say a few favorite topics, to the exclusion of others. Nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. We need all the Bible. We need to understand this as well. And I, I, I think this is severely lacking in the lives of many that go to church often and faithfully. The, the idea that there could be such a thing as a red-letter Christian is totally foreign to Paul's way of thinking. I mean, of course, there, were, there weren't red letters. You know, I mean, that's publishing, you know, publishers did that. But, but the idea that there could be a red-letter Christian, that, that somehow the, the exact words that came out of Jesus in the flesh were more important than the other parts of the Bible, completely foreign to Paul's way of thinking. A very famous pastor of a very large megachurch with enormous influence recently referencing some of Paul's words that he apparently didn't like very much, said with kind of a slick tone, which made it more distressing, with kind of a slick tone said, I'm just going to stick with the words of Jesus. And it begs the question, which ones? Because you go down that road and all of a sudden there's words of Jesus you don't really like either. Right? Jesus says some tough stuff. We need to hear all of God's truth, the Old and the New Testaments, the law and the gospel, the promises of God and the severe warnings of God. Mercy and judgment, love and wrath, the true things to be believed and embraced and the commands to be obeyed. The parts in the Bible that make us want to shout for joy and jump up and down like Psalm 40 and the parts that make us put our hands over our mouths and sit in silence. Has that ever happened to you? You're reading something. Maybe you've even read it before, but it just hits you. It's like, oh my goodness. God is glorious and awesome. And he is not like me. (laughs) And I want to be more like him. A few years ago, Luke and I were down at Bethel Mission, a homeless shelter in Des Moines, leading a chapel service. And I was preaching the message. I I can't even remember the, the... passage or anything I was preaching on, but, but I said something in the, it was not a main part of my message, but I said something about God hating sin. That's not a very controversial thing to say. I don't think, but, uh, this man afterwards, we were interacting with the guys and this man would just look very distressed and very 
upset. And so I went over and talked to him, and he, he just said, boy, I really struggle with something you said in your message. And I said, really, what was that? I mean, I go down there, I preach the gospel. And he said, you said that God hates. I said, I did? Because I didn't remember that I said that. I was like, what would I say God hates? And he said, you said that God hates sin. And I just, I just don't even think of God and hate in the same sentence. And I was like, wow. So we talked a little bit, and I opened up my Bible, and I showed him some different passages. And he just looked bewildered that the Bible actually said things like God hates haughty eyes and pride and so forth. And, you know, unfortunately, this this man had been immersed. He had heard part of the gospel. He had been immersed in in a culture, probably attended church and so forth, but, but really never got beyond God is love, and that's it. God is love, and God is nice, more or less. Later, writing to Timothy, Paul affirms, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. All of it's profitable, and we need all of it. And that's the way Paul lived. He said, I, want, I, I told you the truth. I told you all of the truth. I was faithful to give it to you. Number four, Paul cared for the spiritual well-being and protection of the church. And every believer ought to have that same, ought to have a concern similar to that. For Paul, this meant to warn of false teachers. Verses twenty-eight to thirty-one, Paul says. Now he's, he's writing. There, there's there's particular relevance here for for elders and pastors, church leaders, but there is certainly relevance here for every Christian. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. Paul says, I know this is going to happen. Verse 30, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. For Paul, the the inspired apostle, who said these words under the inspiration of the Spirit, the threat was real, and it still is. And so he commands these elders, pay Careful attention. Be attentive. And I would just say to all of us here, be attentive. Don't be aimless and oblivious to the things you listen to and hear and care for your brothers and sisters sitting next to you and in this body. Paul was not just getting on his soapbox. He's not just amped up without cause. Notice how he refers to the church. 
He sees the church as precious. He says the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I want to encourage you this morning. When you you come on Sundays or go to Bible study group or you're sitting across the table with a brother or sister over coffee to begin thinking about that person or this gathering, these believers as those obtained by the blood of Christ. There's something, I was going to say magical, way better than magical here. There's something precious and glorious here. David says, I love the saints. My heart rejoices in the saints. And Paul's heart rejoiced in the saints and he loved them and wanted them to be protected from false teachers. The church is the people of God obtained by the blood of Christ. You know, to to belong to a renowned golf club can be very expensive. I mean, I don't golf and I, I don't ever aspire to be that great of a golfer. But... The cost to obtain a membership, for instance, I, I heard this a while back, and it might be different now. But Liberty National Golf Course, I didn't even know what that was. You know what that is? Okay. New Jersey, okay, $450,000 to obtain a membership, and then 25000 a year. The cost to obtain... The church cost the blood of the eternal Son of God. It is a precious thing. This is not a cheap gathering when we get together. So for Paul, this warning is very serious. Much is at stake. If I were to say to my kids tomorrow morning, we wake up and I very frantically say, be careful for the tigers outside. You never know when Bengal tigers are going to make their way into town and start eating kids. Anyone with an ounce of sense would say, you are either out of your mind crazy or evil. Because there's no reason to believe that tigers are going to stroll around Ankeny, Iowa. If, however, I live in western India, in Bengal tiger country, and, you know, the the kind that eat people, and uh, one was spotted in my neighborhood last night, and I didn't say anything to my kids because I didn't want to ruin their fun. That would be a cruel dereliction of duty as a dad. The warning Paul gives is based on a real threat. This is not a pretend threat. This is not, well, somewhere, someplace, you know, maybe something, maybe there's some bad characters out there, I don't know. No, he says, this is serious. Two threats are spelled out in verses 29 and 30. Verse 29, Paul says, after I leave, fierce wolves, and NASB, I think, says savage wolves, will come in among you. In other words, they will come in from the outside. Jesus spells this out for us in Matthew 7 when he says, Beware of false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. What do wolves do to sheep? They eat them. (laughs) They devour them. So there are false prophets from the outside that try to make their way into the church. But then Paul says there's another threat, and this one might be more more serious. It's men arising from within, speaking twisted things. The word twisted means perverse, distorted, misleading, and crooked. According to what standard? According to God's standard from his word. It's not our own individual standard. I don't really like that. That sounds twisted to me. No, it's like, no, we compare it to this. That's what Paul is getting at. There's going to be people rising up from within. They're going to be speaking twisted, perverted things. They say things that pervert the truth and twist the truth. And Peter refers to men at the end of 2 Peter who do this with Paul's teaching. They take the message of grace and they twist it and they pervert it. So the wolves will seek to devour the flock and the men speaking twisted things will seek to draw disciples after them. In other words, they'll they'll seek to gain a following. They will draw people. They won't point people to Christ. They will draw people to themselves. They'll use Jesus to do it, but they'll draw people to themselves. In other words, lives are at stake, right? Wolves devour sheep, and men speaking twisted things will draw disciples away. False teachers do great harm. They always have. And as we look through the book of Acts, and as we look at the warnings of Jesus in in the Gospels, because Jesus warns of this as well, and as we look at the letters, I mean, how many letters address some kind of false teaching? A lot of them. Right? Galatians. Second Corinthians, probably First Corinthians is addressed, certainly addressing abuses. Uh, Philippians, Colossians, Second Timothy, First and Second Thessalonians, uh, Hebrews, Second Peter, Jude, First, Second, Third John, Revelation, of course. I mean, so much of the New Testament addresses this. We need to know. Paul wants one of these elders, these believers to know. We need to know as well that this has been and still is a clear and present danger. Sadly, many Christians are completely unprepared for the devil's assaults. And I would say even worse, many church leaders, pastors, well-meaning, don't want to alarm people, and so they say nothing about the threats. But the threats are really out there. Paul cared for the spiritual health and protection of the church enough to sound the alarm. And we need to care for the spiritual health and protection of the church to be diligent, be Bereans, seek to know truth better and protect and guard Christ's church. Number five, Paul worked and helped others 
for eternal reward. Verses 33 to 35, Paul says this, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul was not in the ministry for money to get rich. He worked hard, but he did so for different reasons than many. Paul worked hard in order to help those in need. And he urged the believers, these these believers to do the same, to work hard in order to help the weak, to help those who are in need. But there was an even deeper motivation for Paul. Paul did what he did. He worked hard with his hands and poured out his life for others because he believed this truth. You're more blessed when you give than when you receive. Now that doesn't make any sense unless there is a, there is a, there is a bless, a true blessing that comes to us. And I would like to suggest that Paul is pointing forward to an eternal reward. I remember talking to my kids around Christmas time. I haven't done this for a while but they heard it a lot over the years. I pulled out these words. You know, you're getting gifts for Christmas and amen, it's great. But maybe we, maybe we tried to bless a family or do something together. And I said, you know, we're actually more blessed to give when we give gifts than when we get gifts. And, you know, as little kids are just like, I, that does not make any sense at all. I don't get it. Eternal reward. There is an enormous emphasis in the New Testament on the eternal reward that awaits us. And it energized and motivated New Testament believers like you wouldn't believe. Jesus talks about it all the time in Matthew 6. Jesus says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Jesus also says in Luke 14, he says, when you throw a feast, don't invite everyone who can just pay you back, who can just invite you to their feast next year. But when you throw a feast, invite the homeless and the invalids and those who can't pay you back. And he says this, and then you will be repaid at the resurrection. Wow. I don't know about you, but I just, I just want more of that way of thinking. I need God's help in this. I'm deeply challenged by this. Paul worked hard and preached and lived faithfully and eventually even died looking to the day when he would hear the most glorious words ever. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy 
of your master? Does eternity and the reward of heaven, not just a mindless, I know I'm going there, but eternity and the reward of heaven have any effect on how you work and live day to day? It should. It should. It did for Paul, and he reminded these believers of it. So how do you want to be remembered when you're gone? Someone who knew how to have a good time was the life of the party. Someone who loved, I mean, just loved football. Someone who loved to work. None of those things are bad. But I hope they're not at the top of your list. I hope that there's something in you that wants to be remembered as a faithful, committed, affectionate, all-weather servant of Christ. I hope there's something in you that wants to be remembered as, a, as someone who's faithful to Christ and his gospel above your own comfort and even your own life. I hope there's something in you that wants to be remembered as a lover of truth. All of it. And someone who spoke the truth to those in your sphere of influence. I hope you want to be remembered as someone who deeply cared for the church and the well-being of the church and the protection of the church and the church's fidelity to God's truth. And I hope you want to be remembered as someone who lived for not for the not for the payday now, although there are tons of blessings. Now I don't mean to diminish that, but I hope you're known as someone or want to be known as someone who lived for eternity. Because if that's true, you would leave an enduring mark on your family, spouse, kids, brothers, sisters, parents, nephews, nieces. You would leave an enduring mark far beyond what you could possibly imagine. You would leave a mark on this church. You would leave a mark for Christ's own glory on the church at large. You may not even understand exactly, but you would leave a legacy worth leaving. And therefore, may it be said of you someday, like Jonathan Edwards, oh, what a legacy Tom and Julie and David and Kathy Jordahl and Marcy. What a legacy they left. Let's pray.